On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation harnesses the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about how scientists supported by the foundation took the first ever picture of a black hole at templeton.org. I'm not sure any living spiritual teacher has been recommended to me by more people across the years than Father Richard Rohr. Especially striking is how many men, diverse men, have told me they had trouble connecting to religion and spiritual practice, but that this Franciscan changed their lives, deepened their spirituality, helped them grow up. So at long last, I'm here to draw him out, and it's a conversation with expansive scope, much like his teaching and writing, on why contemplation is as magnetic to people now, including millennials, as it's ever been, on male spirituality and the epidemic of what he calls father hunger, and on the work of moving into what he describes as the second half of life. The first half is necessarily about survival, successful survival, and preoccupations like titles and prestige and possessions with a dualistic either-or sensibility. But all of that doesn't take us all the way to meaning, which is not a linear matter of age and time. To be a contemplative is to learn to trust deep time and to learn how to rest there and not be wrapped up in chronological time. Because what you've learned, especially by my age, is that all of it passes away. (laughs) The things that you're so impassioned about when you're 22 or 42 don't even mean anything anymore. And yet you got so angry about it or so invested in it. So this word contemplation, it's a different form of consciousness It's a different form of time. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Richard Rohr is founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. His many books include Falling Upward, A Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. We spoke in 2017. Well, I would like to start where... I start all of my conversations um, just hearing a little bit about the spiritual background of your childhood. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm 73. So I was raised in what we Catholics call pre-Vatican II Catholicism. (laughs) Right. And not only pre-Vatican II conservative, but I was raised in the state of Kansas by German farm parents. So I had a very traditional upbringing, Mm -hmm. but it also provided a wonderful safe container, as I like to call it. And in some ways, it no way prepared me for what my life has done or what's happened to it. But in other ways, there's a straight line Mm. from that very grounded beginning and uh, where I am now. Mm. And and how did you discover the Franciscans, or how did they discover you? You know, uh, now again, this is we're talking about the mid nineteen fifties. <laughs> okay. Uh, and if if a young boy had had any kind of inner God experience, and you were a Catholic, the only thing to do was to be a priest. Right. Right. Now, when I was in the eighth grade, I read a beautiful little book, probably fanciful by today's standards, called. Uh, the Perfect Joy of St. Francis. Mm. 
And I said, oh, my, I want to live a life like that. <laughs> then it so happened that a Franciscan from Cincinnati in full brown robe and white rope uh, came and talked to our eighth grade class. And he gave me this address off in Cincinnati. I went and joined, and uh, it's a decision I've never regretted. I've mm. had a wonderful life. So you, I wrote this down somewhere, you entered the Franciscan order, became a friar, I believe, was it mm. 1961? That's when I took uh, mm -hmm. first vows. And how, That's right. took first vows. And how old were you then? Oh, it's, I, we'd never let someone do this today, so I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say it, but I was just 19, yeah, you know? Yeah, I think they wanted to get us before we met a girl or something. <laughs> <laughs> but but as, you do, as you describe um, in your writing, the Franciscans then uh, gave you a broad liberal arts education. Yeah, they really did. Right? Yeah. And you describe how this actually set off a very different second journey into yeah, rational yeah. complexity and also a, mm -hmm. a different spirituality, it seems. You know, I always feel like I was born at the perfect time. I was raised, of course, in the older, more stable world of the 1940s and 50s. And I that gave me enough security and groundedness. So when everything blew open in the 60s, that's when I was studying philosophy and theology hmm. uh, in this marvelous form that we were given, where we were really, as you said, given a liberal arts education, exposed to all of history and all of Christian history, too. Mm -hmm. we, we studied historical theology, not just giving you the Catholic conclusions, as it were, but the whole process of how did we come to this notion of grace? How did we come to this notion of Trinity or whatever it might be? And uh, little did I think, even though it was a very stringent form of education, God, we studied a lot, but little did I think how well it would serve me that I can speak now with a certain kind of self-confidence that I'm not unorthodox or I'm not crazy. <laughs> Maybe I am, but I have this assurance that, <laughs> that I'm speaking out of the perennial tradition, mm. you know, that these are not just my ideas. Right. And that gives you a great confidence. A lot of people don't get that kind of education, that they're, they're speaking out of the perennial tradition. I've read you across the years. I, I dipped oh, into a, yeah, a number of books um, getting ready to be with you today. I felt like there were so many different directions we could take this conversation. Oh, I, know. I kind of decided <laughs> to at least begin with your work on falling upward, the second half of life. And I think that that's kind of a personal choice because that's kind of where I, that's the juncture I'm at in, in my life in a sense. Of course, it's not strictly chronological, which we'll talk about. That's um, right. Because it really it's a template for for spiritual journey. And so, so, but you know what you just described and you use some of the words that are, and the images that are important to you in this talking about... And this, I guess, was a phrase of Carl Jung that popularized this notion of two halves of life. Yes. And that the preoccupations of the first half of life are there, and, it's, and that they have their place. It is the raft, but not the shore. But, but it is the mm -hmm. raft. And you've been talking about both your, 
your traditional, very stable uh, identity, the container of your identity, of your upbringing, and then what the Franciscans gave you is that container or identity that is that critical work, um, essential work, although everyone doesn't have um, such stability in their container or identity as no, you did, which no. is what we all struggle with. I know. You know, the, what I've been using lately, Krista, is it's almost a simplistic metaphor, but I've been telling the students at the school, uh, picture three boxes, order, disorder, reorder. Mm. And that if you read the great myths of the world and the great religions, that's the normal path of transformation. Now, what conservative people want to do is just keep rebuilding the first box, order, order, order at all costs, even if it doesn't fit the facts or fit reality. You know, what, what's difficult, and you just alluded to it, is so many people formed in the last 30 years were born into the second box. Right, of don't disorder. have that order to begin with to reject yes, and improve on. Exactly. <laughs> right. It's much harder to grow up mm. if you were formed after 1968. And uh, yet, what I always tell the folks is there's no nonstop flight from order to reorder. <laughs> You've mm. got to go through the disorder. Your, your salvation project, as Thomas Merton called it, it has to fall apart because it's not really love of humanity or God or truth. It's pretty much love of yourself. You don't know that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's not wrong. In fact, it's quite appropriate. Right. But uh, you, uh, what the great religions are talking about, and I'm certainly talking about in the book Falling Upward, uh, is this necessary confrontation with the tragic, the absurd, what St. Paul would call for Christians, the folly of the cross. Hmm. Yeah, that, that disorder is part of the deal. And that's so counterintuitive, I know. Well, you know, you also say... We live in a first half of life culture. Culture that and most church. groups and institutions, <laughs> right, including yeah. religious institutions, That's right. are in that order box. And as you say, 1968 happened, but you know these hallmarks of that that striving, as you say, to survive successfully, uh, yes. which which has its absolutely its place. Um, we didn't necessarily outgrow that or move all the way to meaning. In our no. institutional life or, or even no. culturally. You know, if I said before that the conservative, which is where I was first raised, if they keep rebuilding the first box, so many progressive, academic, uh, liberal, educated folks, they just keep sloshing around in the second box <laughs> and almost resist any sense of order. I think of how the word disruption has become this catchword of the technological revolution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a perfect example of it, yeah. And, um, you know, that makes it hard. Well, I, I frankly, I'm no psychotherapist, but when I see the high amount of eccentric, unstable, mentally unhealthy people I meet today in almost every context— there's got to be some connection that yeah. I, I find I give these retreats and I talk about prayer and healing and transformation, but it's very hard to heal people in an unhealthy, unhealed culture. And you, you send them back 
and the incoherence of our system uh, sort of showing itself in our politics today just undoes whatever moment of sanity, whatever moment of truth or freedom you might offer a person. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with Franciscan priest, writer, and teacher Richard Rohr. Let's talk a little bit about what... So the move from the order that is necessary to... From from the raft to the shore, let's say. Um, Yeah. Because, you know, part of the reason... um, you know, as you say, this is a choice each of us has, this kind of shift to meaning, this trajectory to meaning. Uh, we are free to walk that path or not. Yes. Um, and it, it involves crossover points, which uh, yes. which involve, as you, you know, as you use this phrase, necessary suffering, which is not something as human creatures we are uh, drawn to do uh, willingly. We often have to be kind of brought to our knees. It's 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 moments of transition. So? It's moments like, of crisis. It's thresholds. Yeah. It's facing our shadows. Yeah. yeah, there's no other way, Krista. The human ego will give up control and hand over control until it has to. <laughs> Why would we? And you know, the twelve steppers have discovered this. They call it the first step, yeah. the admission of powerlessness. Yeah. Uh, but who of us would take on suffering voluntarily? It, uh, it pretty much has to be forced onto us. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it is a con- it is not a constant of life, but a very predictable no. occurrence in life again and again. Very predictable. Yeah. I mean, uh, the Buddha is even supposed to have said, "Suffering is part of the deal." Yeah. <laughs> it's part. <laughs> That's of the a deal. translation from the Pali, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> My translation. Yeah. yeah, you know, there's this. So, just to echo what you just said, um, I mean, Joseph Campbell is someone who, at another mm. era in American life, yes. kind of gave yes. voice to this. And you, you quote from him, and there, there is this um, beautiful quote from him about that that mythological trajectory. Um, and I've just been bumping into this everywhere I turn. So I'm going to read it. Really? Uh, yeah, just suddenly in the last wow. month. Um, we have not even to risk the adventure alone. For oh, the, yes. Yeah, for the heroes of all time have gone before us. The labyrinth is thoroughly known. We have only to follow the thread of the hero path. Here it is. And where we had thought to find an abomination, we shall find a god. And where we had thought to slay another, we shall slay ourselves. And where we had thought to travel outward, we shall come to the center of our own existence. And where we had thought to be alone... We shall be with all the world. Isn't that brilliant? It oh. is brilliant. Oh, God, to say that much in one paragraph. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> now, but what I also have been thinking about, um, and it very much seems relevant to me in the context of your work of really bringing these ideas and templates, this ancient wisdom, our modern realities to modern people. You know, one of the catchphrases that came down in American culture from the encounter with Joseph Campbell, uh, a lot of it through Bill Moyers, was follow your bliss. Oh, yes. Right? And to me, yes. that 
also is a kind of shorthand that epitomizes the first half of life <laughs> as opposed yes. to that hard, yes. risky work beyond it. It's not, follow your bliss is not a good shorthand and it's not enough, but it's a very kind of American saying. Yeah, it is. It appeals. We can hear it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Jesus would be a little beyond that when he says, take up your cross, which is yeah. not so attractive, you know. Yeah. But he's he's much more leading us into the second half of life. Right. It it seems important to me that um, that you stress... Although there there is a true progression of life that comes with age, which is about an accumulation of experience, right? But that this is not necessarily chronological, and no. right that everybody doesn't become an elder. It's some That's people right. just get old, and it's also possibly <laughs> possible to be old and childish. But yeah, but I sure also is. experience, sure and I wonder if you have this experience too that there's an important swath of the young among us who are even at a young age, um, seeking a fuller and farther vision of who they want to be and how that is distinct from what they want to do or what they've been taught. You know, I gave a retreat two weekends ago in Santa Fe for 40 millennials. And uh, what some of them have done already for the poor in Africa, starting not-for-profits that care about this cause or that cause, and they you know, conversed with me for a full weekend with some of the most mature, grounded, humble, responsive understanding to what I was saying. Yeah. Just proving the proof of what you just said. Yeah. Some of the young people today feel like old souls. Yes. <laughs> and some of my generation feel like old fools. You know, it's like, <laughs> God, have they learned anything? Yeah. Anything. It's, it's frightening. Yeah. And it's exciting. Right, right. It's <laughs> yeah, both. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh -huh. A phrase that you use a lot um, that I'd like you to just flesh out is an aspect of this progression towards meaning, towards spiritual fullness, is uh, living in deep time. Mm. Tell just, just say what you're saying there. Okay. Well, let me say, first of all, I'm not sure what I mean by that. <laughs> <laughs> but... You know, a phrase that was used in medieval uh, Catholic spirituality was the eternal now. Yeah. When time comes to its fullness is the biblical phrase. Uh, I'm sure you've been told that in the Greek, in the New Testament, there's two words for time. Yeah. Chronos is chronological time. Time is duration, one moment after another. And that's what most of us think of as time. Yeah. But there was another word in Greek, kairos. And kairos was deep time. It was when you have those moments where you say, oh my God, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. Or this is as perfect as it can be. Or it doesn't get any better than this. Or... This moment is summing up the last five years of my life. You know, things like that, where time comes to a fullness and uh, the, the dots connect. When we can learn how to more easily go back to those kind of moments or to live in that kind of space. Now, I think that's what the tradition means by the word contemplation. Mm. 
that to be a contemplative is to learn to trust deep time and to learn how to rest there and not be wrapped up in chronological time. Because what you've learned, especially by my age, is that all of it passes away. <laughs> the things that you're so impassioned about when you're 22 or 42 don't even mean anything anymore. Right. And yet you got so angry about it or so invested in it. So, you know, already the desert fathers and mothers discovered this word contemplation because I believe they found the word that most believers use, the word prayer, to be so trivialized, so cheapened by misuse. Mm -hmm. uh, prayer was sort of a functional thing you did to make announcements to God or to tell God things, <laughs> uh, which God already knew, of course. And they created another word to give us access to this deep time. And that word that kept recurring throughout the 2,000-year history of Christianity was the contemplative mind. It's a different form of consciousness. It's a different form of time. We, let me add one thing. We used to, in Latin, use this phrase, subspatie eternitate. And the old professors used to say, uh, subspatie eternitate. What it means, in the light of eternity. Mm. In the light of eternity, this thing that you're so worried about right now, is it really going to mean anything on your deathbed? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And for some reason, that had the power to relativize the things that a young man would get so impassioned about, positively or negatively. And those were various ways of directing us toward deep time. After a short break, more with Father Richard Rohr. You can always listen again and hear the unedited version of every show we do on the On Being podcast feed, wherever podcasts are found. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with Franciscan priest, writer, and teacher Richard Rohr. His books, workshops, and daily email meditations are considered essential by people across the spectrum of spiritual orientation. We're discussing male spirituality and how he became so formative for diverse men, including many who previously struggled with the very idea of religion or spiritual life. I also experience in your writing, this is the way I wrote it down, and I don't know if you say it this way, but one of the qualities of, of the first half of life or like the early part of the spiritual life is dualistic thinking. Yes, um, and I, that's almost all we have left. <laughs> yeah, right, and yeah. that's another. It's another way our culture is in the first half of life. Oh, yeah. But yeah. but I kind of hear you saying also that contemplation is is a very powerful antidote to dualistic yes. thinking. Yes, 
you want me to talk about it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let me say, how? first of all, Krista, to cover my bases, I'm not going to say that dualistic thinking is bad, per se, mm -hmm. and non-dual is good, or I'd be dualistic, wouldn't I? <laughs> <Right>. So, <laughs> okay, so I'll hold you to say, that. <laughs> all right. So we've got to succeed at clear-headed, non-fuzzy thinking. That's what education is about. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to say that first of all, because so many people who come up to us religious folks and say, God told me, and, and uh, I heard from the Spirit, you find out they think they're at the non-dual level, but they really aren't. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the normal way to get us through the day I just drove over here where I'm recording this from my house about 10 minutes away. And to turn right or left, I needed a good dualistic mind. Do you understand? Yeah. <laughs> to even find the address or whatever it might be. So to get through the day, to be an engineer, a, a mechanic, a, a medical professional, you better have a good dualistic mind. But then you hit a ceiling. And it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Right. But non-dual is where you move into both end, mm -hmm. where you don't look for all or nothing thinking. And we're seeing it in our political debates today. It's almost the only form of conversation left is all or nothing thinking. And it's amazing to me that we could have this many universities in this country and could have this many churches and synagogues and mosques and have so many people still at such a low level of consciousness that they read everything in terms of either or. And that's why all of the world religions, not just Christianity, discovered that you needed a different kind of software uh, to deal with mysterious things, holy things. And that software is, contem is contemplation. contemplation. The mm. contemplative mind. Right. It's, it's like putting on a different head where, uh, let me describe it this way, Krista, you let the moment, the event, the person, the new idea come towards you as it is, without labeling it, analyzing it up or down, in or out, for me or against me. It just is what it is, what it is, what it is, without my label. You have, at this point in history, you have to teach people how to do that. Right. Because none of us are taught how to do that. And that, that, for me, says that religion has not been doing its job for several hundred years. Because that's what we were supposed to evolve people to, a higher level of consciousness that would allow them to do things like love their enemies, right. overlook right. offenses. Yeah, that's non-dualistic you know? thinking for you right but, there. Yeah. Love your well, enemies. The whole Sermon on the Mount yeah. of Jesus yeah. implies non-dual thinking. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think you said Jesus was the first non-dualistic religious thinker in the West. Uh, of the West, yeah. that's right. And um, and I think that the following you have, the the way your words and teachings and and speaking and your your work um, touch people. I mean, I was reading, um, just getting ready to talk to you, I found this blog on the Pethios blog, um, somebody named Mark Longhurst, who, I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Nearly 1,500 people converged in New Mexico two weeks ago for Richard Rohr's second Conspire Conference and Living School Symposium. Our vocations differed and our geographical homes stretched from Vancouver to Tokyo, 
but we all shared a common thirst to drink from the well of mystical Christianity. I and mean, he goes on to say that he graduated, he has a master's of divinity, two rooms really? and a basement full of theology, but had never experienced a contemplative form of prayer. Yeah, so, oh yeah. right, what you're describing. Of you yeah, yeah, and it's so, so when you, what you say is when you offer that, when you introduce that, there's a great longing for it mm. and a great curiosity about it. It is so humbling, Krista, when you see adult people just, uh, you know, slip into such a, a beautiful peace and a beautiful freedom and a beautiful compassion. It's not this emotional religion that we've uh, come to expect uh, emotional religion should be, but just a quiet contentment, a quiet deepening, a quiet satisfaction that I think the universe that I'm a part of is beginning to make sense. Hmm. And I'm a part of it. Hmm. I'm a part of it. And therefore, I make sense. <laughs> See, I, I'm convinced that the discovery of a true God and the discovery of the true self are simultaneous journeys, and, right. and they feed one another. When you, when you meet the true self, you're most open to a, a bigger, truer name for God. When you meet a, a bigger, truer, more loving God, you surrender to that same identity within yourself. And I think that starts to point also at the work you do with men in particular. I mean, it's not you don't just work with men, but male spirituality, male growth. Yeah. And this is very striking to me, again, as I hear you, as I hear people talk about you, as people quote you to me, uh, it's often men who say that this this was their entry point and they hadn't had an entry point to having a spiritual life, an inner life. Um, and it's connected, as you said, um, you talk about the ways men in this culture have been taught and formed to strive for sex and prestige and possessions and titles, yeah. Um, yeah. which is very much that stuff of the first, first half, half of life. Of life. Yep. Um, and that, in fact, is, it has been a straitjacket and uh, an impediment to spiritual journey. I mean, obviously, these are generalizations, but yeah. I know that it makes sense to me about the men in my life, certainly, you yes. know, my father and yes. his generation. Yes. And it obviously makes sense to a lot of men you meet because... I hear men talking about you everywhere I go. In the early 90s, I started reading everything I could cross-culturally on this rather universal phenomenon of male initiation, that on every continent, culture after culture, it was never assumed that the young male naturally grew up. <laughs> Uh, he had to be taught. He had to be carefully taught, as Rogers and Hammerstein would put it. And that was called initiation. Uh, so I, after reading these, oh, I don't know how many books, it all began to come together because the patterns were so similar. Basically, here was the assumption that cultures came to. And at this point in history, I don't think it needs much proof yeah. that unless the male was led on journeys of powerlessness, he would always abuse power. <laughs> and I know that seems damning, but the male just can't handle power unless he's somehow touched upon vulnerability, powerlessness. And it's no surprise, that's the first step 
of the 12-step program. So I created a five-day event. We started doing them here in New Mexico at Ghost Ranch in 1996 uh, to try to compress what was often several weeks or several months, but I knew I could never get men away that long, to try to give them a, a, a distilled experience of classic male initiation. Hmm. And as you said, uh, the response has been overwhelming. It's moved into 13 different countries now and so forth. And, uh, it just I just got an email from the Czech Republic right before <laughs> I came over here about the, they're just ending them today outside of Prague and 150 men are attending. And it, it's very gratifying. So I'm grateful that God gave me a language that made sense to men <laughs> because a large percentage of men don't even take religion seriously, with good reason. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with Franciscan priest, writer, and teacher Richard Rohr. So I want to talk about some of the observations you make, some of the things you have heard and that are involved in your training. And actually, I want to say, it's you, you, you spent um, a number of years as a chaplain at the Albuquerque Jail. Yes, It seems to me years. that this formed, yeah. this, this intensified your sense of urgency around this also, around Around men. the male issue yeah. in particular. Krista, I was jail chaplain here a few blocks from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, for 14 years. And if there was one universal I found among the men in particular, but the, certainly the, the young women too, was it was rare, if not never, to find someone in jail who had a good father. <laughs> That's what got me, you know, just driven toward we, we've got to start growing up men because mm -hmm. the male of the species does not know how to hand on his identity, his intimacy, his caring to his children. Mm -hmm. uh, and and the, the rage in the young male who never had a dad or had an alcoholic father or emotionally unavailable father or abusive father is, is bottomless. It's just, it, it moves out toward all of society. Mm. A mistrust of all authority, all authority figures, all policemen, of course, uh, because if my dad abandoned me, I just basically don't trust older men, mm. and I don't like older men. Now, you can see what a bind this put us in when we define God as masculine right. and called God Father exclusively. That's one metaphor, but it is a metaphor. And so people who never had a loving male in their life and we come along and say, God the Father loves you, they have no outlet to plug into. And that was my experience 14 years at the jail. Yeah. I'd go in these cells, and I mean, these young guys would almost worship me because <laughs> they'd never had an older man give them respect, give them attention. You used the language of father hunger. Yeah. yeah, father hunger. It's... 
driving so many things in our culture. Even this this whole corporate world of the younger male's need to please the big daddy and get his pat on the back or his promotion. I think it's such a mystery of the human condition uh, that also, I mean, you in some place you described someone speaking to you about this father hunger, kind of in the middle of their life and realizing, calling it, saying they realized it was a chasm, a canyon, well, the emptiness remember. and pain left of a relationship with the father that wasn't there. And the mystery that uh, we can get very old and that can still be with us, right? Oh, yeah. That this is not I've, something that you just outgrow. And no, it's, it's, no. it's incredible how we can be defined by these, these broken know. relationships across a lifespan. Yeah. I've had men older than me weep with me still wanting a daddy because <laughs> they never had a father figure. It's heartbreaking, really. You say something that I just want to understand more. You say that when positive masculine energy is not modeled from father to son, it creates a vacuum in the souls of men, and into that vacuum, demons pour. And you say, among other things, they seem to lose the ability to know how to read situations and people correctly. Why is that? I mean, obviously that can be crippling professionally, personally, but why, why, what is that connection? Here's the answer that comes to mind now. I don't know if it's the best mm-hmm. one. But I, young men who haven't been validated by an older male, because we look to our same-sex parent for our validation. And when dad doesn't tell me I'm a man or a good man or acceptable son, I think your first 30 years of life are so frantic. Uh, you don't have time to read inner emotions. Your, your emotional life, there's no subtlety to it. There's no nuance. There's no freedom. There's no grace. There's no time. I often see it in airports. In 46 years, I was on the road, and you'd see these people rushing through airports, neither looking to right or left. Like a deer caught in the headlights. When you're a deer caught in the headlights trying to survive, I don't think you develop an inner world. You understand? Mm-hmm. It's just the, the whole life is externalized. And the, the soul is not born. And that's, that's why, again, suffering for so many becomes the only path. Because it's the only thing strong enough to lead you into the world of grief, for example, or sadness or pain. And those tend to be the holes in the soul that awaken the inner world. And so an important part of every initiation rite was grief work, letting men get in touch with their unfinished hurt and begin to talk about it to other men. Mm-hmm. That's when the floodgates opened. <laughs> mm-hmm. And all of this success that they shined with externally, they finally could admit was all a charade. You know, everything changed after that. I guess that's another mystery of the human condition that that if we can let ourselves feel what we think might kill us, <laughs> it's the only way to grow to a place of being able to integrate it rather than 
be haunted by it? I have found in the men's work that a lot of men are afraid to expose this to their wives. I'm not sure exactly why, but vulnerability is such a scary thing for a man. What I found on the men's retreats and the male initiation rites is that when a certain level of trust, vulnerability was achieved, men found it more open to talk to another man about this than even a woman. Now, afterwards, they would go home and blurt it all out to their wife, too. (laughs) But as much as they loved their wife, I think so many men are afraid of looking weak or vulnerable around their wife Hmm. or their girlfriend. Right. Yeah. You know, just coming back to this both and thinking that is uh-huh. that is that is a quality of, you know, the second half of life, of spiritual deepening. You talk about this quality of bright sadness that mm. that that in that deepening there is a gravitas and a lightness yes. both. Yes. Say say uh, a little bit about the bright sadness. You know, I remember some of the times when I was most happy. After I used to spend the whole of Lent in a hermitage alone. Uh, and I'd come back just sort of glowing like a bliss ninny for the next couple of weeks. But when people would look at me, I remember again and again this happened. They said, Richard, you look sad. Hmm. And I said, oh, my gosh, do I? Because, in fact, I'm feeling exactly the opposite. And I don't know how that transferred to my face as sadness. But... When you live at this deep time, deeper level of communion or love or grace or whatever you want to call it, there is a heaviness to it that is the rest of the world not seeing what I'm seeing? Why are they so caught up in trivialities and why are they making one another suffer so much? So it's the strangest combination of being able to hold deep sadness and deep contentment at the very same time. Hmm. And so I, I discovered that in myself. In my, my most uh, wonderful moments were also my most sad moments, which leads you to a kind of participation in what I called earlier the one sadness, uh, hmm. that your very fact of enjoying grace and love uh, carries with it a dark side that I, I didn't deserve to know this. I didn't earn this. And most people think I'm crazy if I try to talk about it. So the two intense emotions very often coexist in, in the contemplative mind. So that's what taught me this both and worldview. Yeah. The opposites do not uh, contradict one another. <laughs> In fact, they complement and deepen one another. So recently uh, I took a break. Uh, I, I got some rest that I needed badly, and I was staying at a retreat center, and there was... Um, Actually, it was a meditation session I went to. Mm-hmm. And the person who was leading it read a passage from your book, um, Falling Upward. And read the line, and it was about facing your shadow side as the only way to get bigger and yep. deeper. Yep. 
and uh, and there was this sentence that I couldn't stop thinking about. And I said, I'm going to interview yeah. that guy in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to ask him about this. <laughs> what? I can't wait to hear what it is. <laughs> I have prayed for years for one good humiliation a day. Oh, yeah. And then oh, I must watch true. my reaction to it, which sounds so uncomfortable. There's nothing yeah. in me <laughs> that wants to no, pray for one good humiliation a day. <laughs> I just said that to that that group of millennials two weeks ago. Yeah. You know, some years ago, I started recognizing that I was getting an awful lot of adulation and praise and some people treating me far more importantly than I deserved. And I realized I was growing used to it, (laughs) that the ego just loves all of this admiration and, and projection, and a lot of it was projection. And I I didn't want fame and well-knownness and guru status to totally destroy me. And so for me, this became a a necessity that I had to watch how do I react to not getting my way, to people not agreeing with me, to people not admiring me, and there's plenty of them, and that I actually needed that. And so I do. I still, I ask God for one good humiliation a day, and I usually get it. (laughs) (laughs) One hate letter or whatever it might be. And then what I have to do, Krista, is I have to watch my reaction to it. Mm -hmm. And I got to be honest with you, my inner reaction, I'm not proud to tell you, is, is defensive, is that's not true. You don't understand me. You know, I can just see how well defended my ego is. And of course, even your critics, and I have plenty of them, at least 10 to 20% of what they're saying is usually true. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll, I'll recognize that very thing she's so angry at me for saying, I really could have said it better. And I didn't use the right word. Uh, Now, a lot of Christians are trained to be what we call word police. Mm. (laughs) They're always getting you on the right word. And it does drive you crazy after a while. So I try to learn from my critics. And they're often the best of teachers, frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I often um, come to this point in a conversation as we're ending and and we'll ask this huge unanswerable question, but just where somebody would start about how your sense of what it means to be human has hmm. changed, has has evolved, or is evolving. You know, you said right at the beginning of our conversation that our that a sense of God is all wrapped up with what it means to be human. I there's this question on your website, and I kind of feel like it's connected to this. But I'd like for you to think, to reflect on it, what it means in any case. What if changing our perception of God has the potential to change everything? Uh, You know, the Latin poet Terence is supposed to have said, nothing truly human is abhorrent to me. I think the truly human is always experienced in vulnerability in mutuality, in reciprocity. When, when human beings try to deny their own vulnerability, even from themselves, when they cannot admit weakness, 
neediness, hurt, pain, suffering, sadness, they become very unhuman um, and not very attractive. They don't, you would, they don't change you. They don't invite you. Uh, I think that's why Brene Brown, perhaps you've interviewed yes, her. Yes, I have. Mm-hmm. Why her work is having such influence. Because mm. like few other people, she has brought this central, for me as a Christian, central divine gospel notion of vulnerability to really begin to make sense to a lot of people. So um, that's why I'm anxious to, to present the vulnerable God, which for a Christian was supposed to have been imaged on the cross. But again, we made it into a, a transaction. Transaction isn't vulnerability anymore, really. Uh, but vulnerability transforms you. you. You can't be in the presence of a truly vulnerable, honestly vulnerable person and not be affected. I think that's the way we are meant to be in the presence of one another. Richard Rohr is a Franciscan writer and teacher and founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. His many books include Falling Upward, A Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life, and most recently, The Universal Christ. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambilay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Prophet Adewu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon, Zach Rose, and Siri Grassley. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of the On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind, learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org discoveries, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.